Absurdistanis, and welcome to Absurdistan, the transatlantic political podcast with news and opinion from the absurd political reality, which is our home. My name is John. And my name is Adam. This week, we take a look at the new Religious Liberty Task Force in the United States and the charges of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party in the UK. All that and your look ahead coming up, but first, Adam, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing really well this week. Not only am I still on holiday in the lovely south, uh, by the way, we've got a thunderstorm going past if that affects the audio at all, but I've also been offered a job, uh, which I've also taken, and so uh, the family and I will be moving to England, uh, which is rather unexpected. We didn't expect at any point to be moving to England, so, you know, I've been saying, said a few things about moving back to the States, but never say never, never thought I would live in England, let's never say that I might never live in the States again, so you never know. I'll keep my fingers crossed. Well, I hope that uh, you and your wife settle in nicely, and uh, good luck with that. So this week, actually, on Monday, Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced the formation of, quote, a religious liberty task force. Now, I don't know if this is the chaplain arm of the Space Force or not, but uh, yeah, there's not a whole lot of detail as to exactly what this is going to be. But Adam, I think you'll remember uh, towards the beginning of his presidency, I think in May of 2017, President Trump put forth his uh, religious liberty executive order, which essentially said that organizations and particularly churches and things like that shouldn't be limited uh, just because they have tax-free status. They shouldn't be limited in the political speech that they can make or the support that they could put behind a, a candidate. And usually after an executive order like this or some sort of law gets passed, there's uh, from the the departments within the government come guidance that are handed down to, you know, constituent agencies basically saying how the administration wants these rules and laws to be implemented, essentially, especially when it comes to executive orders like this. So Jeff Sessions put into place 20 principles of religious liberty in the United States, and then several pages of essentially explanation of their position so that, you know, state-run attorney, attorney general offices and even, you know, courthouses and, and lawyers who are pursuing these laws in court know the administration's take, I guess, on the law, they, their take on religious liberty in the United States and what they want to enforce. Sure. So clarify something for me. It was an executive order, because I do remember this from the beginning of the presidency, and I know that Trump wanted to permit uh, religious organizations, I think it was to support financially political campaigns, which they weren't allowed to do beforehand. Is that correct? And then as a follow-up, are they currently allowed to do that? They are now allowed to contribute financially to political campaigns, or is that still something that's going to come through at the end of the whatever the task is of the Religious Liberty Task Force? Prior to President Trump's order, and actually still, there was a rule, it's called the Johnson Amendment, which essentially what it says is that nonprofit organizations cannot financially support or endorse candidates. Now, that's part of tax law. Essentially, the IRS looks at it and says that, well, we're giving you this privileged tax-free status. You have tax-free real estate and all of that. And, you know, you're a nonprofit organization. You have that benefit from the government. So the idea is that to keep that tax-free status, you ought to conform to these certain rules, which is, and among those are not endorsing certain political candidates. So this, while it's not targeted at churches, affects churches probably more than uh, other organizations, simply because, you know, as you know, religious liberty has very, 
political roots in the United States. It's a, it's a very divisive political topic in the United States. And it, uh, by many, it's considered a limit on the freedom of religion not to be able to, you know, from the pulpit, endorse a candidate, for instance. So for a long time, that's sort of been the debate between people on my side of the fence who tend to be more secularists who want a separation of church and state, and we don't want churches essentially having you know, tax-free status, to, but then also being able to support uh, political candidates and ideologies. And then on the other side, people who lean more towards opening up the laws regarding religious liberty, saying that, well, no, why are you putting this ar- this seemingly arbitrary limit on somebody's political speech just because of their religious persuasion? Even though it doesn't really apply to individuals, it applies to organizations. So the big thing about Trump's order is that prior to this, you know, an, an individual Christian, no matter what, they you know they could essentially support a candidate. But Trump's order specifically talked about organizations, and that's important. So when it comes to the tax-free status of an organization, that's when these rules will come into effect, the Johnson Amendment, and that's what Trump wanted to limit. The Johnson Amendment itself would have to be uh, removed by Congress, but Trump's order was aimed at relaxing those laws, and and the guidance was essentially to the IRS to uh, loosen or be more lax in their their administration of of these laws. Sure. Uh, Presumably, though, this would also include larger organizations that tend to have a more liberal bent as well. So universities, for instance, uh, universities are tax-free institutions. Uh, I'm not sure if a health service like Planned Parenthood is tax-free. Is that a non-profit? So then would they be able to commit financially to a political campaign? If the Johnson Amendment were repealed, yes. So with Trump's order, you can't now financially support a candidate, legally speaking, essentially. It's more along the lines of there's less of a prioritization on implementing those laws, which I think is funny coming from the administration that talks about law and order uh, and and applying laws no matter what, especially since that was their – their justification for something like separating children at the border. It was a hard application of the laws. And there was a lot of criticism of the of the Obama administration that did selectively sort of imply, uh, apply laws. So, for instance, the, the federal laws on marijuana. The Obama administration did not focus on federal application of those laws, whereas the new attorney general, Jeff Sessions, under this administration is, takes more of a hard line on the, those issues. So... Administrations, as they come and go, they have different priorities, and they, even though the laws are on the books, they they prioritize differently how they how they enforce those laws, um, and that that happens across the political spectrum. And in this case, I, I definitely view something like this as a a nod towards Trump's base. I believe that if it wasn't the most, it was one of the most telling factors as to whether or not you were voting for Trump was not income level. It wasn't race. It wasn't anything along those lines or sex even. It was whether or not you were uh, a more conservative evangelical Christian. So Trump carried the conservative evangelical Christian by a mile. Um, And because of that, 
I think something like this is just a nod to his base to say, no, I've got your back. This these these people in the United States, uh, specifically uh, conservative evangelicals, have felt for a long time that there is unnecessary burden on their religious freedom, uh, and, and there is encroachment on their religious freedom, and it just keeps keeps getting worse and worse as society becomes, you could argue, more secular. And as that's happened, conservative Christians in the United States or even conservative religious people in the United States have, have felt that squeeze, especially things like Obergefell v. Hodges, where the Supreme Court legalized gay marriage, or the, the lawsuits that you've been seeing against Christian bakers who refuse to uh, cater for homosexual weddings and things like that. Those are viewed as attacks on religious liberty. And so that's what this guidance is aimed at. This guidance is aimed at providing more latitude for Christians and specifically organizations to voice their political opinions and not only voice their opinions, but act in such a way that's congruent with their religious beliefs. So Sessions has announced the creation of a religious liberties task force. One, what does a task force actually do within the United States system? And two, what is its job? What's its aim? What is it trying to accomplish? So from what I can gather so far, there's not a whole lot of detail, but from what I can gather so far, really what this is going to be is sort of like a glorified committee that oversees the implementation of these rules and this guidance in constituent you know, AG offices and any offices that are taking cases like this to court. So if you saw a case come up like, for instance, Masterpiece Cake Shop. If it were uh, the state involved in the lawsuit, the guidance that would come down on the prosecution or the defense or what have you would try as hard as they can to reflect this this mission that the attorney general's office and ultimately the Trump administration wants to um, wants to champion essentially. So we had first Trump's executive order, which didn't have a whole lot of regulatory power just because of the fact that the Johnson Amendment would have to be repealed by Congress itself in order for that to go away. But on the heels of Trump's executive order, like I said, the attorney general's office issued – it's about a 10 or 15-page uh, document – of guidance and outlines 20 principles that I was going to go over really quickly here, just so you can get sort of a a taste for where this sort of is going. So they start off fairly innocuous and these, I'm sure they're worded in such a way as not to be overtly catering towards Christian, the Christian base that voted for Trump. Um, they more hearken back to you know the founding ideals of the country of religious liberties. And I'm reading all of these verbatim. Number one, the freedom of religion is a fundamental right of paramount importance expressly protected by federal law. So, sure, uh, that's true. Number two, the free exercise of religion includes the right to act or abstain from action in accordance with one's religious beliefs. So we can imagine that this would apply to something like the Masterpiece Cake Shop case where – Somebody felt as though their religious liberty would have been violated if they were more or less forced to engage in an act that they viewed as violating the religious freedom. Number three, the freedom of religion extends to persons and organizations. So this is, like I said, uh, focusing on what, what the executive order that Trump signed 
it's clear that the mission of the administration and of this guidance is that this now applies to organizations. So we've long had this idea of corporate personhood in the United States. That's a legal principle in the United States. And now uh, the rights of personhood, essentially, that would also entail religious liberty are sort of being conveyed to organizations. And that would include um, nonprofit organizations that benefit from tax exemptions. Number four, Americans do not give up their freedom of religion by participating in the marketplace, partaking of the public square, or interacting with government. Interesting. That that just struck, yeah, that strikes me as a really interesting one because it, it gives no clarity, and maybe it gives more clarity later on. But the when you whenever you act in the public square in the market, you're acting with other people who have the same rights as you do, and so at what point do the same or do the rights kind of come into conflict with each other? And I think that's the goal of a secular naked public square in that there is the recognized right of you to hold your religious beliefs, but there is the idea that not necessarily you keep them to yourself, but you're not privileged over any other position. I don't think enough respect in this whole conversation is paid to the plurality of religious beliefs that there is in the United States. Essentially, the United States is not a Christian nation, but a lot of people believe it is. And so I think that's where we run into a lot of problems in the public square, where there's almost this default assumption that there should be a privileging towards the Christian faith. And then when it's not privileged, then it feels it feels like discrimination when really it's just equality. You know what I'm saying? So, so for instance, back in the day, and I don't want to conflate these two at all, but just as an example, back in the day when you had, for instance, you know, allowing women or even um, African-Americans to vote, when white men were the only group of people that had the franchise, and in a lot of cases only white property owners had the franchise, when other groups were integrated into that, it felt like an attack on them, those people themselves, because equality was being given to people who had historically not had it, had not had those rights. And so you're, you're, the power that you had in that right is diluted the more people that you allow to have it. So I, I don't think it's a strange thing for people to have this reaction. I think it's a very human reaction to have when you start to realize that you're not the top dog. You're not the privileged religion or position or a philosophy. You know, you have to share space. And my my problem with so much of this is that sharing space and equality, can't, it, it, it can't be treated as what the, this administration is treating it as, is essentially an attack upon the Christian faith, which I, I don't think it is at all. Number five, government may not restrict acts or abstentions because of the beliefs they display. So I agree with that. But I just am skeptical and almost cynical even as to how uh, unbiasedly that's going to be applied. Number six, government may not target religious individuals or entities for special disabilities based on their religion. Again, I agree with that. A lot of the, tech, the text that's being put forth there, I agree with. It's just that, I, like I said, I'm, I'm so skeptical of the... It's fair application to everyone. Right. Number seven, government may not target religious individuals or entities through discriminatory enforcement of neutral, generally applicable laws. Number eight, and I, I love this one, government may not officially favor or disfavor particular religious groups. Oh, okay. 
So I mean, I I love that, but I I just look at this administration. I look at Jeff Sessions in particular, and I think no chance, no chance. They don't even do that now. Sure, but it is explicitly in there. Like, so in other words, like, why would the administration put into its guidelines something like that so explicitly? Why why not just leave it out? Why not just have nineteen principles? A lot of this is appealing to his base, but also at the same time, like we kind of talked about with the Muslim ban, was that they worded it in such a way that they knew it wouldn't it would survive a legal challenge. Essentially, mm, okay. um, if they just came out and said, you know, you know, Christianity is the bomb and yeah, is the favorite and, religion. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Uh, or the, the one true religion, you know, and Jesus is the prophet, you know. So, like, if they did that, uh, then that that would could be struck down in court immediately. But to have these general overarching principles, uh, and then maybe selective enforcement, sure, then they could possibly possibly get it through the the courts. You know, number nine is the government may not interfere with the autonomy of religious organizations. I mean, again, I agree with that. It's hard to disagree with that. Yep. Explicitly constitutional. The next three, 10, 11, and 12, they refer to the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993. And really what they talk about there is that the government can't regulate based on the reasonableness of a religious belief. So if the government agency says, well, that's a ridiculous belief, you know, no, you can't have this arbitrary standard on your in your nonprofit organization because it's it doesn't stand up to you know our rational scrutiny or whatever the content of the religious belief cannot be the the basis of the regulation essentially numbers 13 through 18 sort of deal with the legal principles behind this like strict scrutiny and everything that's kind of too detailed to get into right now but essentially it lays out the legal principles on which they base this order and then one that's really interesting right at the end, 19, is that, and this is what I'll end on, number 19, is that religious employers are entitled to employ only persons whose beliefs and conduct are consistent with employers' religious precepts. Hmm. So it does lay the groundwork for a Christian organization to then only employ Christians. Yes. And we had something similar happen with uh, the college that we went to. That's right. Got into trouble for it. Yeah, they did. They did because they had so they had uh, a standard uh, for the people that they were hiring. They had a statement of faith, and they actually sort of uh, got into some hot water. Yeah, our college did get in trouble for this. Uh, the president had signed a letter that was requesting an exemption for religious institutions like our college uh, to be essentially to continue receiving a subsidy that would have been uh, denied them because of their particular stance on homosexual marriage and homosexual relations. Uh, obviously, being a Christian school, it takes the more conservative line, uh, saying that it is uh, both a sin, it is immoral, and that the code of conduct of the school, which is far more liberal than people actually give it credit for, still had elements of that in, in its uh, kind of statement of faith, that students and staff members, and particular staff members and faculty were required to sign yeah there was quite an uproar about that as well because it threatened some pretty substantial grants that the college was getting um and the argument back then was essentially this grant is given to any other college any other you know not-for-profit organization or not-for-profit college i should say um on the basis that they have non-discriminatory hiring policies and there was the the juxtaposition of religious liberty against this you know requirement of non discrimination, 
and really what this guidance is trying to do is get rid of that that this guidance is essentially trying to say well no you know regardless of federal law it ought to be the case that a religious group is allowed to have discriminatory hiring policies just because of their uh, or what other people might view as discriminatory policies, it wouldn't necessarily be viewed as discrimination by the religious group. Uh, it would be more viewed as religious liberty. Uh, and that's kind of the argument that Chris Gavrilides made when he was on this podcast, is that it's not, for him at least, and I believe him, um, I can't say that I believe it in the case of all religious groups, but I, I believe him when he says that it's not necessarily about discrimination for him. It's more about the the religious liberty of the organization to to set its standards and essentially have the freedom of conscience that he was talking about. Sure, sure. I think it is a good. In other words, I wonder what would happen if, uh, say, our college was a Muslim school. Would there be the same requirements? Now, it is on the basis of, at least as far as I can remember, it was a subsidy that was the issue. It was money. Uh, so yes. the the right off the college to continue practicing its uh, discriminatory hiring policies for its own confessional benefit uh, wasn't at risk. It still was able to do that. It still would be, con- it was the fact that there was money on the table that it was due to lose had it continued. And now there is a good question as to whether that's fair or just. Uh, but I, it's difficult to tell without there being kind of the counterfactual data in a sense in that. You know, what if it was a Muslim school or a Jewish school and it had explicit discriminatory hiring purposes? Like, for instance, I could not expect, you know, a, a Jewish high school to be hiring non-Jews as guidance counselors, for instance, uh, particularly those that deal with spiritual issues uh, mm-hmm. or the same for Muslim counselors or yeah, you know, any number of other religious organizations that have a confessional basis, that have a confessional foundation. Yeah, uh, and and I guess that's where I I begin to not certainly not agree with the Trump administration's favoritism towards Christianity, in which I would agree with you. I I do question, and I'm a little bit more cynical about the faithfulness with which these guidelines will actually be put into practice for all religions equally. Uh, I share the cynicism, but at the same time, when secularism itself is particularly on the uh, the more extreme side is becoming dogmatic itself. I do see religious liberties being infringed upon. Uh, I can see where Christians and Muslims who have quite conservative moral practices, where they would begin to feel the pressure that society is beginning to persecute them is, is too strong a word, but begin to uh, pressure them into changing their views or risk uh, some type of uh, either subordination or outcastness or even just simply being called weird. I guess my problem with this, and I sort of brought this up when this whole situation was going on with our college, they are not being required to do anything that would go against their morals. Well, there was there re- is the justice issue in a... Uh, unless the federal government, for instance, was to say... Right. Well, no subsidies to any confessional institution. And I think that's fair. I think that's okay if, if the federal government was to say that. But there seems to be an, an almost arbitrary uh, decision, institution to institution, or maybe situation to situation, in which uh, the government is deciding, well, which confessional institutions get the subsidy and which confessional institutions don't. 
Because in other words, what, what that's requiring or what the federal government is doing is making a moral stand themselves. They're almost making a confessional stance. Right, right but this wasn't necessarily – it wasn't something like if the college said, for instance – in order to be hired, you need to, for, you know, we both signed this when we were at school. It was a statement of faith essentially saying, you know, that you agree with the precepts of the, the faith. The government wasn't saying, oh, no, you can't say that people have to believe in Jesus Christ as God's son or something like that. What they were saying is that you can't discriminate against protected classes and then still receive federal money. So gender, sex. Race, for instance, are protected classes under federal law. Should we then allow that sort of discrimination among hiring practices merely because it's a religious belief and then say, well, no, okay, then we don't have to apply religious – we don't have to apply federal law to to you because you get this exemption for a religious belief? What makes that difference? So let me give you a hypothetical here. The Mormon church has had – let's say, a checkered past with race issues. They've changed their stance, largely, I think, due to the fact that federal money and and federal regulations would not allow tax-free status to people who were discriminating on on the basis of race. Now, in in a world where we took this sort of guidance from Jeff Sessions to its logical conclusion, we would then have to say that if there was legitimately a religion, so I could see this happening in, in some very conservative religious sects, for instance, not necessarily just Islam, which is where a lot of people's minds go first off, but like even like Greek, Greek Orthodox or like severely Orthodox Russian churches where women are very much subjugated. If an organization had some sort of requirement that, you know, we can only hire men, for instance, you know, whatever – and they clearly discriminated against women in their hiring practices, or they clearly discriminated against another race in their hiring practices, but it was because of religious reasons. What is the functional difference between that and a a KKK organization saying we, we're not going to hire black people? Right? What, what, what's the difference between you being racist in that and then you know maybe having racist undertones but justifying it through religious belief? And I think that's the entanglement where the where the federal government comes in. It's like that's where it gets muddy, especially when money's involved. And and that's fair enough. The the only defense I could really think of for confessional institutions is that any conf- uh, the confessional institution couldn't exist without its ability to discriminate. So, for instance, you take our college. The motto that they had when we were there was freedom within a framework of faith. The idea being that. Uh, the college was set up to be a Christian community uh, with which we could then uh, pursue anything that we we, we wanted educationally and, and they certainly weren't dogmatic about the things that we, we could research and study. For instance, they were quite happy to teach evolution so it wasn't a conservative, conservative Christian school. I will add, though, that there was a lot of there was a fair amount of controversy over those things, though. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course, as as you do with the the Christian culture that you have in the States and the divisions that are there. But it, the college was happy to have the discussion happen. It's not like a conservative institution in which creationism is taught and evolution is ignored. Uh, that, that's my point. But the, the larger point I'm trying to make, though, is that uh, if, for instance, you don't have a discriminatory practice in hiring Christians to be staff members, to be faculty members, then it doesn't have a confessional character. It just is a 
school with secular people teaching it and it is Christian in name only. Uh, so that there, I think there does have to be a certain discrimination because, you know, you say that religion, for instance, is a protected class in hiring policies itself. Well, our college couldn't hire a Muslim. Uh, it, it couldn't hire an atheist. Uh, so there are discriminations that have to exist in order to maintain the confessional identity, the confessional foundation of an institution like that. So, for instance, I, again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect, for instance, a Muslim high school to hire me as their religious education teacher, or even as their, uh, you know, their English teacher or math teacher. Right, and I wouldn't either, and I don't think that the government would either. The the issue at at play here is that you're discriminating against something that by all accounts is not something that the other person could control for instance mm. so it's it's a it's a it's not just a a confessional belief system it's an identity issue so you have race, gender, you know, sexual orientation for instance that fall into these camps and then you have sure. I mean essentially Adam if I um, – and this is, again, an extreme example. I don't like using all these extreme examples, but it's the first that come to mind because I'm – you know, you couldn't require a nonprofit to hire a Nazi, for instance, mm, right. because they are th- – that's a, that's a philosophy. That's an ideology that they believe in that's most likely counter to the mission of your nonprofit organization. True. <laughs> but if you looked at it and – you know, say it was the NAACP, and they said, "We're not hiring you because you're white." Instead of the fact that because you're a neo-Nazi, that's where the issue comes in. Because you're born as a white person, you're not mm-hmm. born as a neo-Nazi. You're not born as a Christian. You're not born as an atheist. So I think that's really the difference for me. And that's that's fair. But then, so long as confessional institutions are allowed to exist, in other words, I don't actually have much of a problem. In fact, I've kind of questioned it in the back of my head throughout my education at this college is that, you know, should something like a confessional university even exist? Uh, why does it have to have a specifically religious or Christian character? Why can't it just be a secular organization confined to its own sphere of education? You know, leave religion out of it. Uh, so I, I I guess that's an, that's an issue. But as soon as the law says, well, a confessional institution is allowed to exist, then it also has to permit particular practices such as discriminatory hiring uh, to actually ensure that the institution can continue to exist as a confessional institution. And I understand your point there. But again, I think there is a a clear difference between sexual identity and gender identity and sexual orientation and confessional belief. So you and I both know that that's controversial, though, particularly within religious communities. Religious communities don't necessarily accept that uh, gender identity is an identity, and I'm personally not saying that I agree with that, but when a large proportion of the country is unwilling to accept the veracity of the identity or the the foundation of the identity, is it's not as easy then for the government to implement it in such a, a broad spectrum as to limit confessional institutions on that basis. Well, And also, interestingly, the concept of identity in any category is arbitrary. So whether it's national identity, even racial identity, arguably in terms of sexual and gender identity, they're all arbitrary. We've just accepted them as identities. They, they don't have to be accepted as identities. And so there's actually reasonable 
argument on both sides to say that it is an identity because people feel this but the the opposite argument is to say that while well, you're feeling it but the feeling is subjective and what you're feeling is an arbitrary concept so mm-hmm. why should we legislate on that basis i mean it's true but i guess my question for you then is what do you see as the solution to something like this do you think that for instance churches nonprofits should not get a tax exemption just to kind of clear this whole issue up i i think i would be okay with that having having thought about it roughly three years ago that was the rough conclusion i came to was i would be okay with our college for instance or our churches or religious institutions paying tax and then that way there is an equal equal playing field i do agree with you that if they are exempted from tax then they shouldn't have uh, much of a political say Uh, so i I would rather see the opposite, I think, in which they are taxed, but then they do have the political say, they do have the right. political voice. Because, you know, the, the Supreme Court gave that right to corporations right. as a group of individuals. Super PACs are now allowed to exist as a group of individuals giving financially. So why shouldn't religious organizations be able to do the same? I guess my only question then is, how far do you go with that? So... It seems to me, you know, the, if you follow this logic to its natural conclusion, you end up inevitably in a situation where you have to have a two-tiered legal system. Because, for instance, you know, like you were just saying, there's confessional beliefs of these religious groups that don't buy the fact that there is a legitimate identity in somebody who is a homosexual, for instance. So... You, you see this crop up, you know, in um, some fair mongering that we have in the states about Sharia courts, where you might have, and even in the Bible, for instance, you might have differing penalties for for different things. So, for instance, you have adultery. Adultery isn't punished in our legal system, but in certain in, in in some religious belief systems, it ought to be. So, should certain communities then be able to just insularly apply their religious law because it is their religious belief it is their confessional belief like how do you have a society that operates functionally when that's the case when you take this to its sort of natural conclusion well i think that's what's happening in society anyways you've got the take the masterpiece cake shop case for instance you've got the coming together uh the conflict of two major sets of liberties, uh, religious liberties and what you could call, I guess, civil liberties. I don't think you need the two-tier system. I I just think you need the court to rule on which one takes precedence. Because like I said, with confessional institutions, I'm happy to see them overturned. I'm happy to see them not exist. Uh, In terms of uh, having Christian or Sharia courts, happy to see them not exist. Happy to keep the spheres completely separate. But the Supreme Court, or the courts in general, the judicial system, has to decide because politicians are too weak-willed to do it at the moment and the people at the moment are far too divided on it. Yeah, that's a good point. On that basis, though, what you would see is if the Supreme Court were to rule, then you would risk alienating one half of the country. So I can understand them not doing it. So really what you just need is time. Yeah. So I think the culture will then shift over time. But what it means is you almost need to have grace with people as the country shifts and you know what it won't happen in our lifetime i bet 
Uh, or it <laughs> might happen not to several lifetimes. Or it, exactly. It, it just there's a great quote that I heard uh, regarding kind of the racism issue here in the South. Uh, um, I think it was my mum actually that was chatting with like a 90 year old black uh, lady, uh, an African American woman in their church, and she asked her, "So, w- what do you think would solve the issue?" And her answer was, "Death. It just needs to die." And it will die generation after generation, little bit by little bit, and eventually it will be solved. And then, of course, the generations down the line will have their own things to worry about and fix. But uh, for that particular civil versus religious liberties issue, either the Supreme Court has to rule and risk alienation of half the country, or we just need to let it flow out with grace. I mean, I guess I agree with you. I think that that's probably the only way that this is going to get solved especially with the political environment that we have now it's it's not anywhere near being resolved i don't want to come off here as though i'm against religious liberty i'm i'm certainly not i just come at it from a perspective in which it is a right but it's not the right you know it's not the right that supersedes all other rights and i think that really needs to be fleshed out and I, and especially with the histo- the history of the united states where We've never had a president who has not confessed Christianity. You know, we've never we, – we hardly hear of a non-religious person in government. We hardly hear of a minority religion in government. There's something that Jeff Sessions said in his speech when he announced this task force that sort of alarmed me. And And while I agree with a lot of the principles that are put forth in the guidance, I just think that he has a – a view of the world, a view of the United States that just doesn't accurately represent what's going on. And he ended it by saying that, quote, religious Americans are no longer an afterthought. And I sat with that for a while, and I just thought that they're not an afterthought. Our society, especially in America, is inundated with religion, specifically Christian religion. We have chaplains in the army we have chaplains in the in congress we have prayer before every large national event like the inauguration for instance it's it's front and center religion is understood to be a very central part of the united states there's not a single american if you ask them who jesus christ is for instance wouldn't be able to tell you it's it's a part of the identity of the country, and it's so interwoven that I think it's dangerous to create this narrative that it's somehow under attack or it's somehow going away or, or people want to destroy it. And I don't think that's the case. I think that, like I said, there's this contraction in the religious community that feels as though since its its hegemony is is sort of being challenged, it's 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 making room for other people like non-religious types and other religions. That feels scary and like discrimination. I think that if that's the animus behind something like this, I don't know that we're going to be able to trust it to be applied in an unbiased, fair way that truly protects religious liberty rather than just protecting religious liberty for a certain group of individuals. This week I wanted to take a look at the Labour Party. Things here in Europe are still very quiet, everyone's going into their summer recess, and because of that, political news just drops off a cliff for a little while. Now, Brexit we've already covered last week, and there hasn't been that much news this week, so things just keep plugging along there. 
So while the Conservatives are embroiled in their Brexit infighting, you'd expect that the opposition Labour Party would be sitting back quietly and letting the government destroy itself from the inside out. But they never seem quite able to take advantage of the Tories' negative press and have managed to shoot themselves in the foot once again by falling into a pattern of seemingly endless accusations of anti-Semitism. Uh, so, anti-Semitism on the UK's left is not unheard of, and there still continues to be pockets of it in the current Labour movement. The problem is that nowadays, the Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn has been connected to, in some unfortunate ways, to those who have been associated with anti-Semitism and Holocaust denial, leading to accusations from within and out with the party that Corbyn is just unfit to lead Europe's largest political party. And sadly, it's not foundationless. Do you know of any of uh, Corbyn's connections? I, I've seen a lot of his statements on Hamas, but I, I, I've not really taken the time to look deeply into it and really look at the things that he said. Sure. Well, I, I did some deep diving research in that I read Wikipedia this week <laughs> and uh, having limited time. Uh, but uh, I've also looked at some of the recent news and, and effectively this is why I'm covering this. So uh, in 2009, John, this is where Hamas comes in. He invited members of Hezbollah and Hamas to speak at a parliamentary event. And he specifically praised Hamas for being an organization dedicated towards the good of the Palestinian people. Uh, mm. Corbyn is known as an activist for the Palestinian cause. Uh, he's been a member of different organizations that are quite pro-Palestine. And so it ends up that he shares events and platforms with people who have particularly anti-Israeli views. Mm. For example, he attended a Deir Yassin memorial hosted by a Holocaust denier, Paul Eisen, although he notes that it was before Eisen's views on the Holocaust were made known. In 2012, he praised Raid Salah, who's a regional leader of the Islamic movement in Israel. But Salah has served a two-year imprisonment sentence for funding Hamas and has since been found guilty of using an anti-Semitic trope during a speech. Just this year in March, Corbyn was found to have supported an anti-Semitic mural that was in London that was about to be taken off a wall uh, that depicted an apparently Jewish-looking set of bankers playing Monopoly with their tabletop resting on the bowed naked backs of several workers. Oh, yes. So that that, wow. didn't go, that didn't go over quite so well. How exactly did he support it? Did he come out and say he supported it, or did he like like it on Facebook? Right. So this was a comment on Facebook saying something along the lines of "You're in good company," or saying to the artist uh, who had posted something on Facebook saying that his mural was going to be taken down. Underneath that, Jeremy Corbyn had commented from his Facebook account saying, you are in good company, this is a terrible thing. So I'm paraphrasing the terrible thing part. I remember the you're in good company. Uh, effectively supporting the artist's right to keep that mural up on the wall. Now, of course, Corbyn defends it as saying, you know, we shouldn't be taking down public art. I, well, I agree with that. Right. But uh, the if you were to take a look at the mural itself, it, the way that I described it was taken directly from The Guardian, so I didn't want to risk using my own language i'll leave it to the professionals but you can go and see it and make a judgment for yourself certainly many people have and then just this week corbyn has had to apologize for hosting and participating in an event during which another speaker uh, compared israeli actions in palestine to nazism although mm. interestingly this speaker was a jewish survivor of auschwitz uh, so hmm. uh, there's a certain dynamic that's missed if all you hear is the headline Corbyn shares platform with anti-Semite uh, because there is the anti-Semite supposedly is also a Jew who survived Auschwitz. So there's a certain complexity to the situation. Yeah. 
that's a lot of smoke. That's a lot of smoke. But every that's time a lot of smoke. You, you feel as if you can kind of, you know, shimmy, shimmy this way, shimmy that way and say, well, yeah, because I have this particular pro-Palestinian activism, then I'm going to be grouped with anti-Semites. Yeah, well, I mean, Corbyn has made it almost his life's work to put his foot in his mouth, it seems, because the comments that he made about Castro after he died, the comments that he made about Venezuela uh, shortly before their complete economic collapse and how well they were doing there with their their systems. There's a lot of smoke there. I'd hesitate to come out and straight up call him an anti-Semite, but there may be some similar to what you were talking about last week with, with Trump's the optics of what Trump is saying and, and doing around Russia doesn't befit a leader. And I would have to say the same thing about Jeremy Corbyn in this case. Can I? Can we outright say that he's an anti-Semite? I don't think that there's enough evidence for that for, based on what you've told me. But there's enough there to maybe say that he has some sympathies for people who might see Israel as illegitimate, for instance. He's always ended up on the the left side of people's movements. So Cuba, Venezuela, Palestine, uh, the, even the IRA, to an extent, he's a, he was a, uh, and continues to be a pro-United Ireland advocate as well. It seems to me he's always aligned himself with whichever side is the revolutionary side. Right. Um, and this is just a continuation of that, I would say. It's interesting because here in the States we have a very heightened sensitivity towards this sort of anti-Semitism, where even support of something like BDS, for instance, is is branded as anti-Semitic in the States. Sure. I have been told I'm an anti-Semite just because I, I don't have a myopic view of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and blindly support Israel in what sure. they do. It, what I hesitate to, to do is to assign anti-Semitism to somebody merely because of valid criticism. It's sort of like yelling sexist or racist at somebody because you don't want to address their point. Right. You right. know, like if if he makes a good point, for instance, so if he's having a meeting with somebody from Auschwitz who survived it and lived through the horrors of a Nazi-occupied Poland or wherever he was, and then drawing parallels between what he saw back then and what is going on in in the Palestinian settlements, like, that has to be addressed. You can't just tag it as anti-Semitism and say, oh, we don't even need to address that. That's, that's ridiculous. How could you, uh, how could you, with all this history and everything we know about the Nazis, how could you possibly draw that correlation? Sure. It's got to be addressed. It, it can't yeah. just be tucked under the carpet and pretend that it doesn't exist. You can't pretend that you know Israel's hands are 100% clean in this situation and I, I what makes me uncomfortable is when people do that and then they're branded as anti-semitic uh, that that just seems like a cheap way to get out of accountability sure so labor have tried now believe it or not it gets a little bit worse for carbon oh really yeah because not only is carbon connected in some ways but some of his supporters are connected in some ways as well so uh, in April of 2016, uh, Labour MP Naz Shah was suspended over a series of tweets that endorsed the idea that Israel should be deported and moved to the United States. <laughs> Deport an entire nation. Mass deportation of Israel, leave it to the Palestines and resettle Israelis in the United States. 
Well, that's that's extreme. Okay. That's very uh, extreme. In the same month, a carbon ally, Ken Livingston, was suspended for claiming that Hitler was a Zionist. How? Uh, and what is the argument there? Is it, is it that Hitler was a Zionist and that the Holocaust was faked to create a nation of Israel? No, something uh, a little less uh, conspiracy theory. It's simply that Hitler wanted to get rid of the Jews, so instead of wanting to kill them at first, was just to move them out, like put them somewhere else. Uh, I think. Well, I think there is a... there is historical evidence of of that. Actually, now you t- now you say it, but at the same time, I think it's kind of ridiculous to call, say that he out and out that he's a Zionist. That's kind of ridiculous. Right. And then uh, just this year, I think it was activist Christine Shawcroft of Momentum, which is a pro-carbon activism group, uh, had to resign from Labour's National Executive Committee after defending a council candidate that was accused of Holocaust denial. So they, these little things just can... Again, they're not directly related to carbon, but it's just these little things. It's like someone connected to carbon happens to also have anti-Semitic ties or, or someone else over here who's very pro-carbon happens to support someone who supports or denies the Holocaust. It's it's just those little... You're right, it's a lot of smoke. It's a lot of smoke. It's similar to stuff that you see in in the United States with you know connections of, of Trump, for instance, to white nationalists and things like that. There's a lot of smoke there. There's a lot of in, small connections and people who helped in his campaign, Steve Bannon and things like that, that, that make people question... Um, I think that there is a fine line between wanting to, you know, be honest about what's going on in Israeli and Palestine. And for somebody who, like like me, who's very incensed at injustice, to know the history of what went on in the Israeli-Palestine conflict, when you, when you are somebody who is pro-revolutionary, pro the little guy against, you know, the oppressor and all of that, which Corbyn has been for his entire career, it's very easy to then sort of get whipped up into be very passionate about these things and it's i mean i don't want i i don't want to come out and say oh yes he's an anti-semite but you can definitely allow your biases to sort of just color your view of the entire situation and then automatically always view anything that's coming out of israel as bad you know Uh, and i think that's probably more along the lines of what's going on here than having any sort of real malicious animus towards jews I mean, I don't know the guy. I, I don't know, you know, for sure. But again, I don't want to be out here yelling anti-Semite from the, from the rooftops, you know? Well, so to try and deal with the issue, Labour tried to introduce a new code of conduct on anti-Semitism, essentially a, a way that would help the party define anti-Semitism uh, so that it could be used in disciplinary actions. Uh, and they claimed that it was a cut-and-paste job from the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, and this has been adopted by the British government, the Scottish Parliament, the Welsh Assembly, the Crown Prosecution Service. But what the Labour Party did is it took all the examples of anti-Semitism and rep- I think it was replaced, or only kept four out of eleven, and replaced the rest with their own examples. So they took the definition of anti-Semitism, but then had different examples of what that what that would look like. And this has drawn quite a bit of controversy, more controversy for Corbyn, more controversy for the Labour Party. And I'll just read a little bit of criticism here. I believe this is from The Guardian. Labour has said that the Code of Conduct contextualises and expands on the examples in the widely accepted IHRA definition, but the decision to rewrite them has underlined perceptions that Corbyn's party has failed to take the issue sufficiently seriously. 
One of the examples that they omitted from the IHRA's uh, list of examples was, quote, drawing comparisons of contemporary Israeli policy to that of the Nazis. That's fair. Like, you, you would expect that that should be fairly common sense, but the Labour Party removed it. But they wanted to incorporate safeguards allowing for the criticism of, of Israel's policies, which they didn't believe was in the IHRA's definition of anti-Semitism. And so it, it leads to kind of the question, at what extent, where is the, the line? Where, where is the red line in which criticism of Israel uh, becomes anti-Semitism? Uh, or even, to a lesser extent, anti-Zionist, so being particularly against the political solution that was the state of Israel. So in other words, never being actually anti-Semitic, but just saying that Israel itself as a state shouldn't have existed. Uh, so where where are those those lines? And the argument is that Corbyn is just blurring them all over the place. So now yeah. with him and the Labour Party, we can't tell whether they're being anti-Semitic, whether they're being anti-Zionist, or whether they're just being anti the state of Israel. And just to add complexity to complexity, three Jewish newspapers in the UK ran a combined editorial saying that Corbyn would bring about the end of the Jewish way of life in Britain if he's elected Prime Minister. The amount of blowback that he is getting uh, is possibly unfair. Just as you said, John, there doesn't seem to be much fire. There doesn't seem to be specific instances in which, which you can call him out as an anti-Semite. But there's certainly a lot of smoke, and the leader of the People's Party, uh, the Labour Party, the Workers' Party, the party of the many and not the few, to have such poor optics as it operates with this particular community, and a particularly important community in the West, and particularly uh, for foreign policy abroad as well it just doesn't look good it doesn't look prime ministerial it doesn't look like good leadership and on that basis as well as other things in the labor party they could be heading towards some fairly rocky times and now let's take a look at some of the stories you should be paying attention to this week president trump's nominee to replace justice anthony kennedy brett kavanaugh has moved one step closer to being the next supreme court justice This week, Senator Chuck Grassley announced that the vote could happen as early as October. Kavanaugh has been meeting with several senators on Capitol Hill in a bid to secure votes for his confirmation. Most notably, Senator Rand Paul, a Republican holdout, announced he would vote to confirm Kavanaugh, stating that his concerns were put to rest after meeting with him in person. With a slim majority in the Senate, Republicans may be looking for some crossover votes from the Democratic Party to ensure Kavanaugh gets confirmed, most likely from Joe Manchin, Heidi Heitkamp, or Joe Donnelly, who are all Democrats who were up for election in November and whose states voted for Trump in 2016. This is definitely something to keep an eye on. Sticking with the United States, President Trump has said that he would be willing to negotiate directly with Iran to establish a new nuclear deal with no preconditions. This comes directly after threatening Iran last week with, quote, consequences the world has never seen if the country to make threats against the United States ever again. This is definitely a situation to keep an eye on. After having met in person with Kim Jong-un, it will be interesting to see if anything comes from Trump's offer here. Will we see the reestablishment of a nuclear deal with Iran? Make sure you watch this story as it develops to find out. At the time of this recording, three people have been killed in Zimbabwe's capital, Harare, after election results for the nation's parliament yielded a massive win for the ruling ZANU-PF party, leading to riots from the opposition MDC supporters. The army has been deployed to restore order. As of now, we don't actually know the results of the presidential contest, which has led to further protests and rioting. The election was touted as the first real election since the end of the 30-year rule of Robert Mugabe. 
However, parliamentary results and delayed presidential results have stoked suspicion that the election has been rigged. So if you're listening on Friday, you should know the result of the presidential contest, but the thing that I'll be paying attention to myself is the public's reaction. Zimbabweans are not quick to resort to violent action, but large-scale disruption could be on its way, and for that, this story is worth following. Moving now to Australasia. There is tension between our Antipodean friends. Australia and New Zealand, long-considered sibling nations, have begun to rub each other the wrong way. In 2014, Australia updated its Migration Act that allowed the government to deport foreigners on character grounds. New Zealand claims that their citizens are being unfairly targeted as New Zealanders make up the vast majority of deportees. New Zealand's Justice Minister said that Australia doesn't look like our best friend or our closest neighbour. In response, Australia's Foreign Affairs Minister responded by saying, There's lots that we do for New Zealand. We're a big landmass between them and the boats coming from Indonesia and Southeast Asia, referring to Australia's illegal immigration problem. He continues, New Zealand don't contribute really anything to the defence effort that we've got where we're trying to surveil boats that might be on their way to New Zealand. We do a lot of the heavy lifting. Other issues include Australian cuts to welfare benefits that New Zealanders receive while living in Australia, effectively as permanent residents. But more important is New Zealand's involvement in the discovery that the Australian Deputy Prime Minister was not eligible to be a Member of Parliament as a New Zealand citizen, or at least as New Zealand considered him to be one of their citizens. New Zealand's government is currently a Labour administration that's closely aligned with the Australian Labour Party, which is currently in opposition in Australia. So because of this, the Australian Foreign Minister, who's a Conservative, Julie Bishop, said that it would be very difficult to build trust with a New Zealand Labour-led government. And they accused the governing party of trying to bring down the Turnbull government, that's the current Conservative government. As the countries no longer share a connection through the British Empire, and the country's trading and economic patterns have diverged, it's led to a bit of tension between the two nations. All of this including accusations from the New Zealand Acting Prime Minister that Australia in fact stole New Zealand's flag point to the strong Anzac alliance beginning to free and perhaps the sibling rivalry beginning to heat up. And that's all we have time for today. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Absurdistanis. We're also on YouTube as Absurdistan with an exclamation point. Please be sure to check out our website, absurdistan.com. That's A-B-S-U-R-D-I-S-T-A-N-I-S.com. We post all episodes to this website and also host forums for discussion so that you as the audience can engage with our content. Thank you for listening, and as always, stay informed.